This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. When you are pioneering anything or introducing new ideas to the culture, you get criticized. You do? Yeah. <laughs> Did you hear about that? <laughs> I didn't find the one. I found someone I respected and we made it the one. In a sort of longing kind of view of love, people understand each other as if by magic. Nothing in itself is addictive on the one hand. On the other hand, everything could be addictive if there's an emptiness in that person that needs to be filled. I now know that nobody changes until they change their energy. And when you change your energy, you change your life. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Here we go. My guest today is Maya Feller. Maya is a remarkable nutritionist and registered dietitian. Her new cookbook, which I adore, is called Eating from Our Roots, which is out today from Goop Press. This book is such a beautiful representation of Maya's approach to food. She combines amazing nutritional education and science with a culturally inclusive perspective and a palpable love of global ancient ways of eating. Today, I got to sit down and learn more from Maya. We talked about the big systemic questions at the intersection of food, privilege, and access. And Maya shared her baseline recommendations for cooking for chronic conditions, her thoughts on intermittent fasting, and different ways to bring more joy and flavor into the kitchen. Let's get to my chat with Maya Feller. I love this book so much. I can like the, the palpable feeling of like love, nurturing, nutrition, science. It, it's just a 10 out of 10. Congratulations. Oh, I love so it. I'm so, I'm so excited to have a copy in my hands. It's just gorgeous. How did you choose to be a nutritionist and why? Oh, that's that's such a uh, good question. And I, I realized like we're diving in and I, I didn't even ask you how you are, which is very oh. uncharacteristic of me. How are you? <laughs> For the most part, I'm good. I've been dealing with sort of chronic inflammation and then I discovered I had mold toxicity and Oof. yeah. So I've been like, I'm I'm in process and it's going well, but man, it's like a long, slow process, you know, to the point of like the job of a nutritionist, like never did I realize the impact that food could have. I mean, mm -hmm. of course I always like, I don't know if you know my story at all, but 
the reason that I got into wellness is because when my dad, who was like the love of my life, got diagnosed with cancer, I was like, there has to be a reason for this. It, mm-hmm. it can't, I mean, I know he was a smoker 30 years ago, but like, or at least something we can do now to impact this. And he just had no interest in exploring anything alternative whatsoever. So I started researching and anyway, learning a lot about environmental toxins and what we're eating and pesticides and, you know, processed foods and everything in your wheelhouse and tried to get him to be more healthy. He took no part in it. So I started to do it so that maybe by proxy, you know, and I was like, damn, I feel so much better eating you know, my first four, I was into macrobiotics. So that tells you how fucking old I am. But um. <laughs> you brought back macro. Oh my God. But that is a throwback. I'm not that gonna lie. A that's, throw a, that's a throwback. Back. But, but, you know, so again, like just this deepening in the, the being a student and a recipient of how important food, certain food is in the, and, and I feel like the this landscape has gotten so sophisticated since the nineties when I was trying to convince my dad to eat brown rice, you know? So anyway, tell me how you, like, what, what was the bug where you're like, Ooh, this is really fascinating. I'm going to go in this direction. The story Gwyneth, of me becoming a dietitian is actually, there's a lot of comedy in it. So I went to school for experimental theater, but like not, yeah, yeah, not. So people are like, Oh, Oh, they're like, that's why you love to speak. I was like, no, no, no. I used to do Bucho, like covered in like white powder, wearing like a loincloth. Like, no, wow. but there was, it was very avant-garde. Like my mom theater. used to take me to stuff like that when I was little in New York. It was, yeah. Weird. Listen, weird. it's important. It's weird, but it's, it's cool. Yeah. Like, I thought it was take awesome. Me to the, she used to take me to the Joyce all the time. Yes. I bet I saw you. <laughs> so you know, at some point I realized that actually I wasn't going to be able to like have an apartment or food as an experimental street theater artist. And so I was, I decided, I was like, what am I going to do? You know, so I went, I kind of just had a really super basic job. And in my free time, I started training for the Boston Marathon. And my running partner and I, we just love to run, but we were terrible around the nourishment, like really bad around timing our eating or our hydration. And she was literally in and out of the hospital because we were just so bad at it. I seemed to fare better, but she was like in and out of the hospital for overnutrition, undernutrition. And so one day I actually said, I was like, I'm going to just Google like nutrition for runners. And I was like, oh, this is like a thing. Like you can study this. And then like I did on our next long run, I said to her, I was like, listen, Nods, I was like, I should become like a nutritionist. And she was like, that's a great idea. And it's so funny that I kind of fell into that it that way, because actually by the time I started studying, Mm -hmm. I realized that like, oh, I love nutrition and I love community and I love the science of it all. And then I just kind of never left and really went head first into community nutrition work. Wow. The interesting thing about reading the book was, you know, I've obviously read a a million cookbooks. Like I'll read a cookbook, like a novel. And I obviously love to learn. And so the conflation of all this amazing nutritional information and recipes is so cool and pretty new, I feel like, but I loved that you were bringing in all of these old 
ancient cultural ingredients and ways of eating in all these cultures around the world because you know this link between the modern western american diet you see those those graphs it's like you see di- diabetes and obesity and heart disease and everything go up and to the right as this highly processed diet was introduced and has to the west and has now taken over the world unfortunately and people didn't used to eat and get sick is that right i mean i it's so incredible kind of the link between what we put in our mouth and i always say like the up or down regulation of how our cells behave like food is information and we've all heard that and i completely like you know i talk about it in the book i remember visiting my grandparents in the caribbean and like my grandmother was in the kitchen she was making something from scratch like whatever seasoning she made there were herbs from her backyard and that's not to say that people weren't getting sick but the kind of chronic illnesses they were showing up like much later in adulthood where like now we're seeing kids 12 10 with some of these conditions that used to be i guess reserved for adults of course there's a link between environment But there's also definitely, you know, something around how we interact with food, also what's accessible to us, right? That has changed the way that chronic disease or the face of chronic disease, even in the U.S. and around the globe. Mm. So when you have a patient and they come to you and they have these sort of chronic eating related issues, where do you start? So... I think when I was a young dietitian, meaning like at the beginning of my RD career, I used to give an education and I actually now don't at the beginning. I ask them to tell me their story, like what brought them to me, tell me about their nutrition journey, because I've learned that, as I said, like environment, social determinants of health play such a major role in kind of people's perception of food and also what's available to them, what's accessible, what's affordable, and then in turn kind of what they interact with the majority of the time. So I step back and I learn. Mm -hmm. And then once I begin to learn, there's kind of a back and forth conversation. And I do my best to guide with the, cause everybody that I work with has some kind of, you know, chronic condition. I don't have, I've, I don't have anyone in my practice. That's just like, Oh, Hey, I want to tune up or like level up. So, you know, <laughs> the idea is to change their clinical outcome. So we're, there is always a goal in mind and my real kind of hope in my client work and patient work is that we help people step one step closer to improving their labs and their outcomes, but in like a real sustainable way. Yeah. Right. So like, if you have high blood pressure, like if you see me or you see one of the dietitians on my team, like our goal is to help you bring your blood pressure back into an expected limit. And if you want to reduce your medication, we want to support that. Mm-hmm. So we're like super clear, like we go in and we're like, we will support you in what you want around your health. Mm-hmm. And will you take us through what are some of the chronic conditions that you feel are best primarily addressed with diet? Oh, that's such a good question. So 
the non-communicable conditions, like I think for sure about diabetes, patient self-management, hand in hand with the two. There's so much link between kind of carbohydrate literacy, really understanding the types of carbohydrates that we eat, whether or not they come in liquid or solid form, whether or not we pair them with a meal or we eat them alone, really understanding your individual insulin response. So for sure, diabetes, insulin resistance as well. We work you know, with people who have high blood pressure, also on the border of having high blood pressure for sure, high cholesterol, and then cardiovascular disease, but on different levels. We also, I mean, not in my practice, but other dietitians work with renal disease. 100% nutrition plays a huge role there. And also autoimmune conditions. I don't ever say that like it's curative, but it can be 100% supportive. Wow. Like Hashimoto's and PCOS. Yeah, absolutely. And also allergies, right? Right. So like when people have food allergies, of course, we're going to work with them or intolerances. I mean, I feel like the list is getting longer and longer, but that's to say that there's, there are so many chronic conditions that can be both positively and negatively impacted based on what a person's ingesting. Right. And so for allergies and those chronic conditions of of autoimmune, are those all related to inflammation in the gut? So it's, so I, I'm all, cause I have this like sciencey background. I'm always really careful to say that, like, I can't say that this is the root cause. Right. Of course. But I can say that on kind of a really broad kind of spectrum, we know that inflammation is at the root of all chronic conditions where the inflammation kind of originates, sometimes we don't know, and we don't always know the mechanisms for why things get turned on and other things don't. But to your point, we know that the gut has a lot to do with immunity. And when I say immunity, like I want to be clear, I'm not saying that like, you know, the gut is going to stop you from. However, when you are able to feed and nourish your gut, it is able to express optimal health. And so people are like, what does that mean? It means like when we give the gut fiber and when we feed polyphenols and when we're mindful about the added sugars, the added salts, the synthetic and the saturated fats and the lab made fats, we allow the health of the gut and the diversity of the microbiome to flourish, right? We want diverse gut bacteria when it's like a monoculture down there. It's no good for us. Yeah. So, so what's happening to the gut when we eat something, for example, that's highly, highly processed? So I always like to go back and this is something that with my colleagues, we spend so much time talking about, like, what is a processed food and what does it mean for something to be like ultra processed versus, you know, minimally processed. And in my practice, because I work with chronic conditions, we're very much focused on the quantity of the added sugars, salts, and fats. And here's the thing that's so interesting is that think about some of those like vegan meat substitutes, you know, people enjoy them for whatever reason. And they can, you know what I mean? They can be very processed, right? That then at the same time, right? I have patients who are like, you know, from time to time, I want to try it. And so I say, all right, we want this also in the context of 
food that is minimally processed or in its whole form. I don't want to go too far off topic, but I often say this. We don't want people eating only salad every single day because then you're missing out on nutrients. And we don't want people only eating, you know, something like a frozen pizza every single day because then you're missing out on nutrients. And so I'm super careful because I also work with people who need convenience foods, right? But what I will say that when the center of our pattern of eating is foods that have that abundance of those added sugars, salts, and the fats, but the synthetic and the lab made, metabolic dysfunction is, I would say, almost always kind of the a point that shows up. And it, it's always hard for me to say that because I'm so acutely aware that like, I don't want to shame anyone. You know what I mean? And I also know that access is a major problem for like historically marginalized communities. But I also know that those are the very foods that are in abundance in those communities. And then we see these super high rates all of all of those conditions. And it's like, you know, it's a challenge even to talk about it. Like, how do you come to terms with the fact that like, yeah, if that's what is accessible and if that's the majority of what you're consuming, then you're at increased risk for not being well. What And it's not your fault, you know? Yeah. So, And it's such a one awful part of, and of which there are many, of capitalism, which is, you know, convincing people throughout the world in different communities that you know, this is easy and, and cheap and, and delicious. And, and therefore, you know, your health can be compromised long-term. I mean, I, you know, to your point, and this is so beautifully descriptive in the book, like you talk about going to Trinidad to where your grandparents were, and it, it doesn't sound like it was, you know, a super affluent community, but the food was local. It was fresh. It was seasonal. It was there. It was amazing to read. I felt like you were transporting me back to your childhood and I was smelling all the spices and, you know, the curries and everything that was going on on your grandmother's stove. It was amazing. I mean, so here's the thing that's really like funny. Like when I think back to my grandparents and I think back to my grandmother, you know, this was a time kind of in the world where like women didn't work. You know what I mean? So like yeah. the the man went out and worked and my grandfather worked really close with like parliament in Trinidad and Tobago. So he was really involved in labor kind of laws and issues. And I think that's where I got like my social justice from. Like it was like early <laughs> on, but like my grandmother cooked for her family and then she would go out and she would volunteer and she would cook for I mean, it was terrible the way that they referred to unhoused people back then. But so she would go and she would like volunteer her time. And what was so interesting, as you were saying that, it reminded me like, you're right, they made food. So imagine going in, you know, like the 70s to a place where people are, you know, receiving meals. It was fresh. It was all of these women who volunteered their time and would go down to the local church and cook. And they went multiple times per week mm-hmm. and they would just feed the unhoused population, you know, and then they would go back home and then they would feed their families. But it it was really food was based around someone being in the kitchen and someone actually working with 
ingredients in their whole and minimally processed form. And it was delicious. And also it was full of respect, right? Yeah. And, and, and so like, if we're talking about quality of food, you know, you just said minimally processed whole food, is it an inherently privileged thing to expect to have whole foods and, and whole nutrition? Like how, how systemically and societally can we change that? I mean, that is like the million dollar question. <laughs> I, I think it's an amazing question, Gwyneth. Like, to be honest, like it is, it's something I think about all the time because you're right. At least in developed nations, it has come to be a sign of privilege to right. be able to make choices around your food. When in fact, so funny. My dad said to me, I was visiting him in Haiti and he built a community center there, an education center. And he said, you know, our food has always been organic here. Whether And this is like, you know, it doesn't matter how people feel about organic food, but he's like, our food has always been organic. We've always grown it with soil health in mind. Right. You know what I mean? Taking care of the animals, taking care of the land and like wanting to have a product that is nourishing. Right. And that was, you know just across the board. And so when I think about that question, has it become a privilege? Yes. And is it totally intertwined with like food politics? 100%. Mm-hmm. I feel like we're at the point where when we have these conversations, because it is a privilege, so many people get left out of the conversation. Yeah. yeah. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on The Goop List, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. In the agribusiness that exists, you know, in America, I think, you know, where we, our system is so focused on profits, like that impacts us, right? I mean, is there a difference between, I would love to ask you a little bit about the quality of the meat, because, you know, there's always a should we be vegetarian? Should we not? And and recently I've really come to understand that there's incredible environmental benefit to raising animals for food regeneratively, not only for the environment, but for from a nutritional standpoint. And I would just love to ask you about that. Yeah. I mean, I definitely, when I work with my patients and when we're able to make choices around where food is coming from, I say where it comes from and how it was farmed absolutely matters. Absolutely has an impact on 
the end product. And it's so, I mean, like I pause so much when I think and talk about food because it's complicated, right? It's hard for me to say, yeah, I absolutely want people having beef and lamb from really high quality sources that are thinking about, you know, well, what's happening? What's the methane production, right? Like, what are we doing to this cow? What are we feeding the cow? It's so interesting. I heard a talk this weekend talking about actually beef and lamb from Australia and how they're really involved in reducing the methane that's, you know, being produced. And I thought, well, that's awesome. Yeah. Right. Imagine if that was something, every piece of beef and lamb that everyone consumed for all the meat eaters, because people who eat meat, there are quite a few of them, right? But imagine if it came from a regenerative farm. Yeah. Imagine if that was the standard. We'd be talking about reducing CO2 emissions like in a major way. Mm-hmm. And that's really about the future. And so I feel like sometimes that's why I pause because I know that when we're talking about sustainability and when we're talking about food, like we need a combination of top down, bottom up, and we need industries to really shift their priority from like profits to thinking about people in future. And we're absolutely better off, like 100% when we pay attention to where our animal proteins are coming from, you know, how they're raised, what they're being fed, the health of the soil and so on. And can I just double click a little bit on that from the science perspective, like what happens or doesn't happen that makes certain kinds of meat raise certain kinds of way better for us? So this is an area that like I am, I would say, you know, researching and that there's tons more research to be done. But this is my understanding that when meat or like ruminants are you know, like beef are grass fed and grass finish, it actually changes the nutrient profile of the meat and it tends to be leaner. So when we're thinking about people who have cardiovascular conditions or metabolic conditions, at least in my practice, we definitely like grass fed, grass finished for those patients, just because they tend to have like a low, the the protein itself tends to have a lower lipid profile. It's not nearly as marbled. And so you have to modify the cooking (laughs) a lot of people say like they're like oh this grass-fed stuff it's it's you know it's robust and I'm like yeah we're not accustomed to it we're really accustomed to you know kind of corn finished that's Um, what the instant pot is for right the pressure cooker (laughs) exactly that's exactly right yep so but that's kind of you know one of the differences that we see I also recently learned too that when we feed these ruminant animals things like lentils. It also helps to sequester some of the, you know, methane that they produce, which I thought was really cool. So it's like, not only do we benefit from having beans in our pattern of eating, so do they. (laughs) Amazing. So as part of my trying to lower inflammation, I have been doing like a fat, an intermittent fasting window, not a huge one, but you know, it's like, I try not to eat anything until lunch. What is a healthy way for those of us who intermittent fast, because we have something going on or just some people just like it or they're whatever. What is the best way to break that? Because if, sometimes you're so hungry, you're just like reaching for whatever. And then I'm like, I'm, I'm sure I'm not helping the longer term picture here. I love that question. And so I say two things. We would all intermittently fast if 
we would wake up in the morning, have our first meal, you know, sometime after waking, and then dinner would be our culminating meal. We would right. all be engaging in intermittent fasting. Right. And I often tell my patients that. And the reason I say that, and it's not extraordinary, but there are many of us that have dinner and then continue to eat into the night. Yeah. So I just leave that there. No judgments, but just a statement. Right, right. The number one that I say for people who want to intermittent fast is that planning ahead really allows you to go in and out of the fast, both mindfully and intentionally around food. So if the focus is intermittent fasting because you're trying to impact your blood sugars and whatever the window, right? But let's just say there's a period of time where there's no food coming in. Then that first meal, in theory, I would love to see a great source of fiber and I would love to see some type of protein. And that can be totally different. And we can modify it for people who eat animals, for people who don't eat animals. But what would really be an I example think. of a couple, like a, a, a vegetarian version and a, you know. Right. So like we could see something like beans and maybe a sweet potato and some type of green. And I would have like ginger, garlic, onion. I tend to love things like turmeric, cumin, black pepper, you know, but so like really well seasoned. But if we want to go another direction, you could go like, you know, tarragon and sage. And that's amazing, you know, with lemon and olive oil. But like, you know, play with the type of bean. So it could be a lentil with carrots, but it could be a black bean. You know what I mean? But that's what I would love to see. Some type of bean, some type of starch, sweet potato, potato, cassava, plantain, and then some like mixture of dark greens could be cabbage, bok choy, Chinese, broccoli, you know what I mean? You name it, like pea shoots, whatever. For the meat eater, I like to see any kind of animal protein that they like. I am partial to seafood. Just that's like my Maya's personal preference. And I love fatty fish. I also love tiny fish. I don't know if that's because like I grew up with Caribbean grandparents, but like I'm totally fine with all the small fish. Low in mercury, so, those fish, right? So good. So good. And like they are like packed with protein, omega-3s. You're getting like all the calcium and the D. Like it's it's just they're like I delicious little packages. I'm an anchovy girl. I love anchovies. So favorite. good, right? So good. I'm in the minority, but that's okay. I'm sticking with it. <laughs> I was just in Iceland recently and I was like, oh, this herring is delicious. And everyone was like, what? <laughs> I was like, I love it. But so yeah, I would love to see some type of animal protein of your choice. And I do like starch. And I think it can be like really like any type of starch or grain that you like. I like black rice a lot. It's really quick cooking, but it's great polyphenol content because it's black. So it's like just mm -hmm. super nutrient rich and also a good source of fiber. And of course, you know, some type of non-starchy vegetable. I love the cruciferous vegetables and I'm a big mixer of like Brussels sprouts, kale, collard, Swiss chard, like in a dish together. Mm. And it's the season right now. It is indeed, indeed. 
The wait is over. That's right. Season 5 of The Kardashians is here. Just when you thought life couldn't get any faster, they're punching it into overdrive. Chris, Courtney, Kim, Chloe, Kendall, and Kylie are back and continue to defy expectations in all their endeavors. So, get ready to go behind the glitz and glamour of the most iconic family on television. The all-new season of The Kardashians premieres May 23rd, streaming on Hulu. I would like to ask you this, and I, it's a, you know, maybe like a little bit of a topic, mm-hmm. but, you know, I I find that in our culture, there's a lot of talk around, you know, like health and wellness and intermittent fasting and, you know, wearing a glucose monitor. There's a lot of observation and measurement around what we're eating, when we're eating it, you know, and I think there are things that people have agreed on, right? Like if, if possible, it's good to eat dinner and then not eat till breakfast, right? To let, that's an intermittent fast to let the body rest from digesting and, you know, expel some toxins, right? I sometimes worry that like we're a culture that's predisposed to disordered eating the barrage of images that we see and what we're supposed to look like and blah, blah, blah. We all know, you know, culturally that whole story, but now there's this like wellness eating piece that's coming into the picture. And so I'm like, what is healthy and what is disordered? I'm trying to sort of understand while like even for myself, just bringing more grace into, you know, and I think mine was catalyzed by this real gut health issue that I'm dealing with. But then I'm like, is this okay? Like, you know, where does, what is wellness and what, where does it get tipped into like something that's not, you know, that's more disordered. And do you see this a lot? I mean, this is a topic. This is like a, it's like for everyone listening, I'm like, take a deep breath. I know. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's it's a topic. It is a heavy, heavy, heavy topic. Because the line has been blurred. Right. And so much of the culture of dieting has been explained through the lens of this is what everyone should do. And if you're not engaged in this, well, then there's a morality around it. You're not good, right? Because it's binary. And you're like everything else. 100%. You know, and like, if you get sick, it's your fault because you didn't follow this, like, you know, pathway. And it's exclusive. And it like goes back to your question of, is eating this way a privilege? And this was something that I was talking through with a colleague of mine. We were talking about, this is, I just learned this word, mixed amylization. So it's the process of pounding corn, but then adding either ash or lime. And as has been done in like indigenous Amerindian cultures, and it's like an incredible way to consume corn. That's stone ground corn with either like ash or lime. And it's like super nutrient rich. That is now a fancy thing, right? And then, but it's at the same time demonized. So to your question of like, 
you know, when do we enter into this like restrictive, don't eat this, don't eat that, follow, you know, kind of this prescriptive diet pattern. I think it's like one big ball of yarn that's completely intertwined. And it really goes back to what you said. And it's with profits at the top. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the truth is, at least in my experience or kind of how I think about it, you know, go travel through parts of Europe. Food is not nearly that complicated. You can walk into places and you can get strawberries for two euros in the summertime. You know what I mean? Yeah. And yeah. Right. And I, and I think that in the complexity of it, because the culture of dieting is big business that it's also been confounded with if you engage in X diet, you are guaranteed to be healthy. And so we have a sick nation that's hungry for being better. Like everybody wants to, you know what I mean? Live a, live a fulfilled, robust life. Mm-hmm. It's like a, it's like a crime of opportunity. Yeah. So interesting. I noticed too, that when, you know, you go to other cultures that was so beautiful what you said about in other cultures food just being more simple and I was really struck by that and when I think about how how much morality we place on it how much identity how much it's so complicated for us as a nation and now that we're sort of hyper fine-tuning this wellness thing it's just it's just struck me recently. Like, are we going about this in the right way? Like, are we giving ourselves grace through these processes? And, you know, instead of kind of being hyper perfectionist about what we should be eating and what we're cutting out and what we're allowed to have. And I mean, I'm guilty of that myself. I I don't think there's grace. You know what I mean? There's so many of my patients that feel guilt, they feel shame, you know, BMI, I wish it would be thrown away. Yeah, I wish it would be tossed out. I have patients that before they even walk into a doctor's office, the doctor's on them about, you know, their BMI, and they may or not may not be there to talk about, you know, weight loss, they're probably they're usually in my case, there for their blood pressure or their blood sugars, right. And I think there's no grace. I think also, like food and imagery, are totally linked into youth and able-bodied people. Mm. So, you know, we see these images and we equate health with young, quote unquote, fit, quote unquote, slender people who have thinness, you know, and then also too, it breaks down on racial lines. And so I think there is no grace. Like we don't see images of older people, you know, (laughs) enjoying life. And when I say older, like, I mean, we don't see women in their fourth and fifth decade of life being portrayed as the bastion of wellness. We see pictures of people who are 20 and 30 eating salad and that's healthy. That's, you know what I mean? That's what we all think of when we think healthy. Right. Right. And isn't it true as well that for some people, like, for example, I unfortunately am not supposed to eat a lot of legumes right now because of my gut situation. But for a lot of people, legumes are incredibly healthy. You know, some people are more prone to digest certain things better than others. And 
it's not a copy and paste, is it? Not at all. I love that you said that, right? So I've worked with people who have, you know, SIBO or who are dealing with, you know, IBS or IBD. We have to be really mindful of those cruciferous vegetables, especially in large quantities and also the legumes. Like that's a digestive nightmare for them when the recommendations are, you know, a serving and a half of beans per day. One size absolutely does not fit all. And that goes back to your where's the grace, right? We're super copy paste. Yeah. On page 172. Okay. I'm going to 172. (laughs) Eating from our roots. Okay. I'm with you. You have, this is what I want to make first. I'm going to make it this weekend. Salted cod from Trinidad and Tobago. Salted cod is a popular breakfast dish in Trinidad and Tobago that is often made with vegetables, fresh herbs, and spices. It may be served with a bake, a quick bread, or boiled dumplings and a dollop of pepper sauce. I like to pair mine with bake, as well as avocado and cucumber. Full of flavor and easy to prepare, this savory breakfast is perfect for a large crowd. This is breakfast! Yes! And I I spent all weekend making breakfast for my husband and looking for unusual things. But before we talk about the recipe... This is one of my favorite parts of the book because it's in every recipe. Ingredient highlight. Thyme, a fragrant herb, holds its own when it comes to its nutrient profile. When consumed in large quantities, it is an antioxidant-rich source of vitamin C and a good source of fat-soluble vitamin A, both of which support immune function. I didn't know that about thyme. Yes. Isn't that amazing? I, I, I love this. Okay, so... First of all, thank you for these notes because I've learned about the nutritional value of all the herbs that I use all the time. So this breakfast, will you tell me what is a bake and what do I serve on the side of this gorgeous looking thing? So this, so a bake first, and it depends on what island you're from. And also I have to say in London, they also, England, they also have bake there in the form of, I believe they refer to them as Johnny cakes, but a bake is like a quick bread. And my family, when I, we go up to the countryside to visit all the aunties, there would always be bake just waiting and they would do coconut bake. And so it was like fresh coconut. I mean, I'm telling you, they would take the coconut, crack the coconut, strain the water, reserve it, grate the coconut, I mean, like the amount of love that would go into this dish and it was just perfect Mm. and they would bake it. And then, you know, you could enjoy it with this salted cod. I put avocado on the side, mainly because I think of my dad who's Haitian, not Trinidadian, but would eat avocado with everything, everything, including pasta. Oh my God. (laughs) There. I know we would always make fun of him. We'd be like, really? And he was like, yeah, it's delicious. And it's like, okay. But I have avocado and cucumber just because I think that those flavors lend themselves to what's going on in the dish. And yeah, so you could have it with bake. You could have it alone. If you're feeling very adventurous and you're up for boiling cassava, you could Mm. boil cassava and enjoy that on the side for like a really nice savory breakfast. Oh, you have, you've completely opened my world here. The other thing that I want to make first or second, I haven't decided is the, is the egga? Yes. 
Yes. Okay. So that's kind of like for some people who are thinking about it, it's like it's an Egyptian style omelet. And I think the flavors are just incredible. I think they're out of this world. And that one actually was contributed by Chef Gerald. And I remember when that recipe came in and we were testing it, I was just like, oh my goodness, this is good. I'm so excited. So how did you find these? Because you worked with seven chefs, right? To help bring these recipes to life. Tell me a little bit about that process. Yeah. So I knew that all the recipes had to be tested by chefs. And I also, I should go back and say, I knew that because I'm a dietitian, I've been trained to like remove flavor. Like we take salt away, we take sugar away, we take fat away. Like that's our first thing that we do when we look at a recipe is we start cutting those things. And I said, I absolutely have to work with someone who's going to impart those flavors in mindful and intentional ways. Mm. Because I want a book that actually people want to make the dishes, right? Like there are plenty of quote unquote diet books out there, but how often do we return to those recipes unless we're on the diet? And what I wanted was a book that just had super nourishing food that could be made anytime. And of course you can modify as you need. Mm. So I reached out to two people. Number one, my dear, dear friend, Chef Sylvia Barbon, who is like, I have now referred to her as my chef sister. (laughs) So (laughs) she's like this incredible, she's just got such a love of flavor and she's super talented. So I reached out to her and said, you know, chef, I want to start interviewing other chefs and I'm looking for people who either are not American, right? Or are like first generation from somewhere else or people who've done extensive travel in these areas. And so, I mean, we had like from her, like a list of 20 people. And then I reached out to chef Bill Talpan, who is the culinary director at the Met and said the same thing. And he gave me a list of people who I talked to, including like the pastry chef at Aquavit, you know, chef JJ from field trip, you know, so like I was, I was talking to people and they all gave me their time. Like everyone gave me 30 minutes and I was just asking questions about flavors and kitchens because I'm a dietitian. I don't know anything about this stuff. And then I said, I said, you know what? Rather than, I said, I'm going to reach out to these people and ask them to actually contribute. So I picked seven of them and said, will you contribute recipes from these areas? Some of them were Chef Sylvia's friends. Some of them were the people that Bill, Chef Bill Talpan had, had recommended. And then we started to get these amazing submissions. I did modify them, full disclosure. You know, so there were ingredients that sometimes I added in or some things that I took out. I did make modifications to every single recipe. And do you, and, uh, and you cook at home? You, you cook? Yeah. I cook every single day. Every single day. Yeah. Except for tonight. <laughs> Where are you going tonight? Oh my goodness. I wish I was going out. I think that something's being brought in. Yeah. Okay. No yeah. shame, no judgment. No, no shame, no judgment. I know. So, but yeah, I say we cook the majority of the time. And so, you know, as Chef Sylvia and I were working together, she was the main chef and tester in the kitchen. So we were in the kitchen for probably a month together, if I remember correctly. And this was in the shutdown portion of the pandemic. 
And her girlfriend was the only other person besides my husband that was in the in the kitchen with us because we were like we potted. And then all the testers would show up at the doorstep with Tupperware <laughs> and we would oh, hand on. out bags of food. Or I would walk around and, you know, because some people lived close and deliver them bags of food. And then we would get all this feedback, right? Like, we thought this was great. What was this? I didn't know that. What what are you doing here? You know, I felt like it needed more salinity or this. And so some, you know, some recipes I did like four or five times. Yeah. Some recipes we did twice, but we were just in there working with the food, working that's with the, the way flavors. to do it. That's the way to do it. Right. That really is. That's that makes me even more excited to cook from the book because, you know, I've, I've done a couple of books and I was so, because I felt like I have no business writing a book. I just want to write a, a cookbook about my dad and my love of food and the, the amount of testing and testing and testing and making sure and feedback so that other cooks, you know, could, rely on the recipes. I'm, I'm so excited to, I'm so, what do you think I should cook? What's your, what's the signature thing? So I have my breakfast that I'm starting with. Okay. What about a dinner? So other than legumes, is there anything that you're not eating at the moment? I mean, like when I look at the egg for example, like I'll use forager sour cream instead of regular, like mm-hmm. I, I'm pretty good with substitutions, but just like the grain grains and legumes right now, I'm not having. Okay. So I think there's a, there's the salad that has lobster tail. Yeah. That is really delicious. The grilled artichoke was. Oh, I saw that. With the herby, herby yeah. dressing thing. That looks amazing. And you can swap that and you could just do like the plain foragers. I wonder if that peely nut you remember that peely nut yogurt that was around for a little while? I don't know if it was lava, but oh. they had like an interesting, it has an interesting flavor that could be a nice substitution. Okay. Nice. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. I would do that or, Oh, the peri peri chicken. Oh yeah. I saw that. Yeah. 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 You could do that or actually, Ooh, yeah. This, and I have no favorites, but I love seafood. You could do the octopus. I can't, uh, I can't okay. do it. They're okay. too smart. Okay. They're too yeah. sweet. I know that's a controversial dish. It's a, I it's have a, to give it up. Yeah. It's a controversial dish. This is like, yeah, but um, okay. You know what you could put in its place? Do you do well with other shellfish or are you okay anything, with it? Anything. Yeah. Cause you could put like crawfish in there instead. Ooh, okay. Mm-hmm. Crawfish, langoustines, like that. Kind yes. Of- Ooh, okay. definitely langoustine. Cause that langoustine right now is a bit easier to find. And I, yeah, and I'm in California. So we have those Santa Barbara prawns that come straight out of the ocean. They're so good. Those langoustines. That sounds delicious. Okay. Maybe I'll do this as a lightning round. Okay. But the first one might need a little bit more explanation. Okay. Canola oil, seed, like seed oil, canola oil. Yes or no? Oh, that's such a hard question. And it's interesting because I learned from my chef friends that it's a yes. Canola is a yes. Yeah, there's so many. Here's the thing, and I'm going to put it in context. It's, I believe you have to vary your oils. Like, what do you saute with? Actually, avocado oil. Uh-huh, which is, me too. I knew you were going to say that. 
Yeah. And you see that it shows up in the book quite a bit and it's because it can tolerate high heat. It yeah. doesn't get rancid. Rancid. Right. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. I, I feel very connected to you on this. <laughs> okay. Alt milks or cow milk? Oh, that's so hard. Okay. As the person who has lactose-free 2% milk, like an ounce in their coffee every single morning, I'm going to say for Maya, cow milk, it's organic value. <laughs> I mean, 2% lactose-free milk. For the people out there, make the choice that works for your body and also your values. I love that answer. And if you're going to go with an alt milk or from a nutritionist dietitian standpoint, are there ones that are better or should we make them at home? Oat milk spikes my glucose, if, but like what are, or does it really depend on the person or? It depends on the person. If you're able to make it at home, there's so many cool machines that make them in like just a fraction, like no time at all. And the only reason that I say that also is because with inflation, like things are just unbelievably expensive. And if you're using an alt milk, it's never bad if you can tolerate nuts or seeds to actually have that base ingredient. And then you can use it like across multiple cup cooking applications. Nightshades? Yes or no? So again, needs a caveat. I say yes, but then I have patients who have not been able to tolerate them. Right. And so again, it's totally individual. I have some patients who just like could not tolerate them, but if you can go for it. Okay. Dairy, like cheese and, you know, sour cream and stuff like that. I love fermented dairy for people who can tolerate it. I love skier. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I, I love fermented dairy. I love sheep. I love goat milk, all of those and the cheeses. If you can tolerate it, I think that's fantastic. Okay. White rice or brown rice or black Ooh, both. rice? <laughs> Red, black, white, brown, wild, although it's not rice, but all of, all of the above. Wow. Okay. Coffee, is that okay? So again, there's a caveat for people who are not caffeine sensitive. Like I have patients who, you know, have generalized anxiety disorder. Coffee sometimes works for them if they're in an agitated state. That's a hard no. I also think time of day matters, especially for people who are thinking about getting to sleep. For people who experience elevated blood pressure and are sensitive, again, you just have to be mindful. I have some people that do really well with like a cup in the morning. That's it. But it but some people say it's a superfood and packed with with antioxidants. And I just read this article in the New York Times that it's so great for you. So it's so funny because it is actually like, I think it's the number one source of where people living in the U.S. get their antioxidants. I I read that. (laughs) It's coffee, right? I mean, I think the challenge is that we're so like some is good, more is better. And then you have people chugging coffee all day and then displacing their desire for like actual food, you know? And so that's why I'm like, just be, be aware of how your body feels on coffee and also like you know, are you doing well on like two, you know, 24 ounce cups of coffee? Maybe you are, maybe you're not. Mm -hmm. Alcohol. This is a, this is a unequivocal. I hung out with the distilled spirits council recently. And man, let me tell you, when you learn what a standard drink is, 
<laughs> Most of us, if you imbibe, are not having a standard drink, I would say do it responsibly and be super mindful and intentional and absolutely in moderation. Like, absolutely. Do you drink? I do drink. I do not drink Monday through Friday and I don't save up for Saturday and Sunday and have 10 drinks. Right. But then I, you know what I mean? I, I do then drink. And do I have fun with my friends from time to time? 100%. Do I feel it the next day? Yes. Like I'm a, I, I, I can't get down. Like I can't do it. I feel you. Okay. Here's my last question. Is there one food or I don't know, drink, or there's, there's something that when you eat it, you feel like, ah, like it, it immediately kind of lifts you up. So yes, 100%. I love lobsters. I love oysters. I think it's because I'm from Massachusetts. You know what I mean? I was born there. And then with like the Caribbean roots, like I'm just like ocean through and through. Oh, that's so great. Maya, what a pleasure. What an honor to publish this phenomenal book. I am so excited about it. I am beyond thrilled that you love the book for like entering into this conversation. You know what I mean? Like having these sticky, messy talks that are not neatly tied up into a bow. I mean, that's what we do here at Goop. (laughs) Yeah, you do. I'm so glad to be in conversation with you. Thank you so much for listening to my chat with Maya Feller. For more from Maya, pick up a copy of her new book, Eating from Our Roots, which is out today. I cannot recommend it enough. Thanks for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts.